The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the Psalms. Psalm 36, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 12 this morning, which is the entire psalm, the word of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, but his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to John. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 5 this morning. And perhaps I should just take a moment to explain why we're moving from the Gospel according to Matthew to the Gospel according to John. Um, part of our practice in our church has been for many, many years anyway, is for the two weeks that lead up to Christmas for us to preach and worship from portions of God's word that focus on the incarnation. Pastor Woods wanted to preach from John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18 on Christmas Eve, and therefore I thought it would be helpful for us to look at the prologue. This morning we're going to look at John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5, and this evening verses 6 through 13, and we'll be able to see how this all fits together. And since we're coming to the gospel according to John a bit cold, um, I want to remind you what the book is all about. It's very helpful when you read a letter or a book to know what the author intends. And thankfully, with the Gospel according to John, John tells us, I have written these things that you may believe in Jesus Christ, and that believing you will have life in his name. That means if you're here this morning and you have not yet placed your confident trust in Jesus Christ, the goal of this book is that you would do that very thing, that you would believe in Jesus Christ and therefore have life in his name. And for those of you who already believe in Jesus Christ, that you would grow in that confident trust and you would enjoy the abundance of eternal life that is yours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Gospel according to John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, the word of our God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning service. How do you introduce the story of God himself, right? God the Son, taking to himself a true human nature in order to die for the sins of the world. Well, Mark begins his account of the gospel by focusing on John the Baptist, the great forerunner of Jesus Christ. Matthew begins with a genealogy, a genealogy which in particular links Jesus to David the king and to Abraham, to whom the promises to the people of God were initially most fully made. But John begins earlier than that. John begins before David and even before Abraham. John begins his gospel by taking us back to before time began. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I hope you can feel the rhythm of John's words. Uh, They're not exactly poetry, but there's a rhythmic pattern to this prose that carries us forward to grasp the wonder of what God is doing by taking to himself a true human nature. Indeed, the first 18 verses of John's gospel are like an overture to a great piece of music. Uh, That's actually helpful for us to remember because you really only grasp an overture when you listen to the rest of the symphony. And John is doing stuff here, but it's very compact. And you're only going to fully grasp it. Well, I want to suggest it in one sense. You're never going to fully grasp it. But you're only going to grasp it more fully as you continue to read through the gospel. And then you come back and do it again and again and again. The truth is, we will never come to the bottom of this because this is a revelation of God himself who is infinite. But we do see, as we read through the Gospel of John, a fuller, richer, and clearer understanding of who God is and what he has done, just as we come to a fuller, richer, and clearer understanding of an overture as we listen to the orchestra play the music over and over again. Let me give you just two examples. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 talk about the pre-existence of the word. That is, the Son of God did not come into existence uh, when Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary. This theme gains depth and power when we later hear Jesus confronting his adversaries and saying, before Abraham was, I am That is, I have existence in myself. Or when we come to the high priestly prayer, Jesus will pray, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before time began. Or as some translations will put it, before the world. Or consider verse 4. In him was life, And the life was the light of men. 
Now, in chapter 5, Jesus will make clear that just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And in John 8, we find the beautiful passage where Jesus tells us that he is the light of the world. Well, there are far, far too many connections for us to go through this morning. In fact, you could delightfully spend many, many months just teasing out all the connections between these first five verses and how Jesus will reveal himself in the three years or so of his earthly life. But let me encourage you with two thoughts. First, as you repeatedly read through John's gospel, keep coming back to the prologue. Make those connections. Uh, You're going to see that almost everything you read in the rest of the gospel connects in one way or another to these first five verses. It'll be helpful for you to go ahead and make those connections for yourself with the aid of the Holy Spirit. Second, don't panic if you do not fully grasp everything that you hear this morning. Rather than that being bad news, it's good news. You have a lot more to learn about God. And the reality is, as you grow in the Christian life, as you meditate on these words over and over again, God is going to give you fresh insights into who he is and what he has done. Well, let's dive in. The first five verses of John's Gospel unfold from eternity past, beginning with the existence of the Son of God. Then they move to the Son of God as the creator of all things, and then to the ongoing work of the Son of God, right down to the present day. So we're going to look at three big movements in the story this morning. First, we're going to look at the existence of the Son of God. Second, we will look at the Son of God as the creator of all things. And third, we will look at the ongoing work of the Son of God, a work that continues to the present day. Let me give those movements to you once again. First, we're going to look at the existence of the Son of God. Second, we will look at the Son of God as the creator of all things. And third, we will look at the ongoing work of the Son of God, which continues right down to the present day. Um, Just one word of clarification. I probably should say something about the fact that John begins with something that's a little surprising. Maybe it's not surprising to us if we heard it our whole lives. But he talks about Jesus as the Word. Why does he choose that term, the Word, to express who Jesus is? If we think about the Old Testament background for this expression, three things should jump, jump out at us. First, the Word of God is living and active. Right? It's active as the means through which God created the world. Now think back to Genesis 1. There's a pattern in Genesis 1. And God said, and there was. And God said, and there was. The word of God is that by which God creates everything that exists. And the word is powerful. It's not just information. It brings to pass what he wants to bring to pass. The word of God is both active and powerful. Or as Psalm 33 verse 6 puts it, It was by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. Second, the word of God is active as the means through which the Lord brings healing and salvation. Not only creation, but new creation. The word of God is active 
as the means by which the Lord brings healing and salvation. Uh, Think about this striking example from Psalm 107, verses 17 through 20. If you're taking notes, that's Psalm 107, verses 17 through 20. There we read, Some were fools, through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. It is by sending out his word that God brought healing and salvation for his people. He still does that today. Third, through his word, the Lord reveals himself. That's obvious, actually. That's one of the main reasons why we speak or write. Through the word, the Lord reveals himself. Now, that's true of the inscripturated word. It is true of the prophetic word. And it is preeminently true of the word made flesh of Jesus Christ. As John's gospel will later tell us in verse 18 of this chapter, um, something that we'll hear more about next week, no one has ever seen God The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Or do you remember how the book of Hebrews begins? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. So why does John use the term word as a title for the Son of God? Uh, D.A. Carson helpfully pulls these together, so I want to give you this expression. God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. Let me give that to you again. God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. It's therefore quite fitting that the term word would be used to describe the eternal Son of God and to reveal something to us about the distinct role that the second person of the Trinity plays in our salvation and knowledge of who God is and what he is like. With that in mind, let us look at the first five verses of this great book together. I want to look at them under the headings, The Existence of the Son of God, The Son of God as Creator, and The Ongoing Work of the Son of God. Verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, These verses convey three absolutely vital things for the Christian life. The Word was pre-existent, the Word was co-existent with God, and the Word self-existed as God. Right? Existed, co-existed, self-existed. Those things are all important for us to grasp. Let me take them in order. In the beginning was the Word. Um, think back to the day you were born. You probably don't remember it all that well. But you do realize there was a day 
when you were born. A year before that, you did not exist. Or to use the theological term, there was a time when you were not. Beloved Jesus Christ is not like that. I mean, as to his human nature, he's like that. But as to his divine nature, Jesus simply is. He always is. He was before time began. There was never a time when Jesus was not. In the beginning was the word. The word was preexistent, and the word being eternal always coexisted with God. As John simply puts it, the word was with God. Now here's a warning for you. By far, the most common heresy you are going to hear from evangelicals, there's a lot of heresies out there in the world, but evangelicals care about orthodoxy. They don't want to be heretical. But the most common heresy you're going to hear from evangelicals is this. They're going to forget that the word is a distinct person from God. And they're going to talk about Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate son of God, as though he's simply a different manifestation of the same God. Now, I, I know many of you have heard this illustration. Uh, here's a really big warning. Please don't go home and use this. This is an illustration that's wrong. It's an illustration of a heresy. But it's to compare the Trinity to water. And it changes based on temperature. Right? If you get water cold enough, it becomes hard. It freezes. If you warm it up, it melts. It becomes a liquid. And you heat it up more, it becomes steam. And people intending actually to help others understand who God is and what he is like will say, that's God. Right? In one form, he's ice. Another form, he's water. Another form, he's steam. But there's only one water. But that's entirely wrong. See, God is not simply showing himself to you with different faces or in different modes. Rather, God is three distinct persons who relate to each other. Right? The word was with God. And that should be obvious if you simply read through the Gospels. Because what you're going to see is Jesus prays to the Father. Right? They have a relationship. Two different people communicate. They talk to each other. Uh, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is a distinct person who is also truly the one God. It's a very important truth for us to remember. I'll talk about the importance of that in just a moment. The Father, um, therefore, doesn't do everything that the Son does. And the Son does not do everything that the Spirit does. Now, they're always involved with each other because there's only one being. But you should remember the Father does not die on the cross. The Son does, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't send the Father. The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. In their distinct persons, they do distinct things in the economy of salvation. Or as John simply puts it here, I mean, I'm developing this a great deal, but the Word, who is God, was with God. Two distinct persons, one nature. Now, lest we wrongly assume that the word was simply a creaturely companion to God the Father, John immediately adds, the word was God. Right? Jesus was, is, and always shall be God. Well, here, here's the question. What difference does that make? I mean, is this just something that theologians like to split hairs over 
and, and discuss in seminars? Well, it turns out it matters a great deal. First, if Jesus is not fully God, you cannot be saved. I, I hope that grabs your attention a bit. If Jesus is not fully God, you cannot be saved. See, it's only because Jesus is fully God that he could bear the weight of the sins of a vast multitude of people. If Jesus was merely a perfect man, I say merely, you don't know any perfect man apart from Jesus. But if Jesus was a perfect, sinless human being, and he died for your sins, the most he could do is die for the sins of one other person. And he'd have to remain under the power of death forever. No resurrection. Right? Because that's the wages of sin. But because Jesus is truly and fully God, he can bear the weight of sins, not just of you, not just of me, as great as that is, but of this vast multitude of people who have been chosen in him since before time began, bear the full weight of that, and then by the power of his own destructible life, rise again, triumphant over death. If Jesus is only a creature and not God, you cannot be saved. Second, if Jesus isn't truly and fully God, you have no reason to believe that God loves you. What have you ever thought about that before? If Jesus is not truly God, you have no reason to believe that God loves you. I mean, you could believe this other creature, man, whatever he happens to be, angel, loves you. But you know, the principal reason why we know God loves us is this. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. Well, that's only broken apart if Jesus is someone separate from God, not himself God. But because the Son of God is, in fact, true God, who you look at and you consider everything he's done for you in terms of his incarnation, being willing to be conceived in the virgin's womb, born in a manger, suffering in this life, from his, his creatures mocking him and putting him to death, and then having the wrath of Almighty God poured out upon himself so that you would be saved, you can say, he loves me, and he gave himself for me. Who? God. God, come in the flesh, has demonstrated his love for me. Third, if Jesus is not God, then to worship Jesus is idolatry. And to not worship Jesus if he is God is to totally mess up on the chief end of your life. The, the chief goal of your life, the reason why you were created and redeemed is so that you would glorify God and enjoy him forever. And because Jesus is God, if you don't do that with Jesus, you are in serious trouble. But if Jesus isn't God, you're an idolater here this morning. Um, Actually, one of the really fascinating things to me in New Testament studies is because I'm believing New Testament studies for a couple hundred years really ran off the rails. Uh, they wanted to move all the miracles out of the New Testament, so they made them really late documents. You know, they're getting written at the end of the first century or in the second century, so you have time for all this stuff to evolve from the little kernel of truth about who Jesus is. Do you know how the, the best evangelical scholars have consistently gone back to the Lord, the um, I'm not going to call them liberals here. The unbelievers who are addressing that passage and showing they can't be right is they've demonstrated that from the very beginning the church worshipped Jesus Christ. You know, this begins in the upper room. I mean, if you just take the Bible at face value, 
with Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. Because Jesus is God, he has been and will always be rightly worshipped by his people. Indeed, a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Beloved, theology has consequences, and getting the first two verses of John's gospel right is essential for your Christian life. It is essential for you to have a Christian life at all. Verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Uh, That might seem a bit redundant to you, because... If Jesus is God, then obviously he made all things. Uh, But this is actually a very important truth for us to get. He is the creator of all things, which means he's not only the source, but he's completely sovereign over them. Every single molecule in the universe belongs to Jesus Christ. I might also say that sometimes repetition is important. Teachers like to say, right, repetition is the mother of learning. So there is, in fact, a great deal of repetition in God's word. Nevertheless, I think John is doing more than helpfully driving home the point that Jesus is, in fact, fully God. See, John's experience of Jesus Christ did not begin in time past. Remember how John first experiences Jesus? He's hanging out with John the Baptist, the forerunner. And John points to this Jewish man. I mean, Jesus is both, right? Fully God, fully man. He points to this Jewish man walking along, and he says, look at him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And therefore, it's important for him to realize that while Jesus is fully man, he couldn't die if he wasn't. But the very cross which he created, and the very cross upon which he was crucified, was from a tree that he created. The dirt in which the cross was planted was the dirt that Jesus created. The evil human beings who cried out for him to be crucified were all created by him. Everything that exists, exists because of Jesus. He even created the very people who would put him to death. When we come to Jesus in prayer... We should remember that we are coming to the one through whom everything exists and that apart from Jesus, there is not a single thing which has been made that he did not make. If we do this, we will discover the love that God has for us is all the more astounding. This morning when Christ bids you to his table, I would encourage you to think about this truth. The the one who holds out the bread to you and says, take, eat, this is my body given for you, created everything that exists. Who can begin to fathom such love? The God through whom uncountable galaxies have been created took to himself a true human nature to live the life that you and I should have lived and to die the death that you and I should have died. Beloved, we will never fully fathom that love. Look to the cross and remember, all things were made through him, and without him was not 
anything made that has been made. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, life is a characteristic Johannine emphasis. John uses the word life far more than the rest of the uh, authors of the Gospels, the rest of the authors in the New Testament. He, he, he focuses on this idea of life. He uses the word 36 times in this Gospel and 17 times in the book of Revelation and far more frequently than any other New Testament writer. In the Gospel of John, life is the life by which God himself lives. The Son possesses this life from the Father and has come into this world to give his life, this life, to mankind. Remember when Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer what he says, Father, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As Leon Morris rightly points out, it is only because there is life in the word but there is life in anything else on earth. Life on earth does not exist in its own right. It is not even spoken of as being made by or through the word here, but as existing in him. In him was life. Uh, remember I said earlier that there was a time when you were not? There's a time when everything that's created was not. But God and God alone has life in himself. In him you live, and in him you will have that true life, eternal life, that endures forever. God and God alone has life in himself. We have life only because our lives are sustained in the Son of God. Now, if you've read John a couple of times, you know that John characteristically likes sort of double meanings to words. It's one of the things that makes John so fascinating to read is you're going, did I quite get that right? And you dig a little bit more and you discover more about God. Uh, on the one hand, John is saying that all biological life is dependent upon the life of the Son of God for our ongoing existence. On the other hand, as the rest of the gospel makes clear, John has spiritual life in view as well. The only way that anyone ever enjoys eternal life with the Father is by having it in the Son. Right? He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. But the wrath of God rests upon him. Uh, these intertwined ways of speaking about life, only being in the Son, will surface over and over again throughout the Gospel. For example, we are told that he came that people might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. We are told that Jesus gave his flesh for the life of the world. We are told that only those who eat his flesh and drink his blood have life. And we are told that when Jesus gives people eternal life, that they, that is you, will never perish. There are many other instances of John highlighting how life is in and only in the Son. I just encourage you to look for them as you read through the Gospel of John or you listen to sermons on it. It's everywhere in John. 
And then John adds, and the life was the light of men. Just like life is an important metaphor for John, light is a very important metaphor, very important image in his Gospels. Throughout the Gospel narrative, the incarnated word is the source of life and light because he himself is the life and the light. Uh, this connection between receiving and embracing the light of God's revelation and having life is actually not new to John. It's found throughout the Bible. Uh, as you read through the Old Testament, you can pay attention to these images of life and light, and you'll see how they all tie together. Let me give you just one example. Well, let me give you two. Uh, first, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses tells the Israelites, Look, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And just two chapters later, Moses continues, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word to you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess Receiving, trusting, and resting upon God's own self-revelation that is upon the word of God is how we enter into life. It is how we have life. It is why we will never lose the life that God gives us. We are not surprised then that Jesus repeatedly declares that he is the light of the world and the only way that human beings can have true and everlasting life is by embracing him. Salvation does not come to you as an abstract principle. It comes to you in a person. Well, there's an important shift in verb tenses uh, when we come to Jesus being the light. And it's a, it's a shift I don't want you to miss. Now, the truth is, when we listen to things being read or even when we read them ourselves, we do not pay a lot of attention to verb tenses. But here, it's important. Uh, John has been talking about the fact that Jesus has always existed, right? And you think about that in terms of the past. But now he wants to make clear that the Son of God continues his work throughout all of history. He moves to the present tense. We were told three times that the word was, right? When, when John speaks of the word as the creator, he says all things were made by him. But when John comes to the light, he speaks of the light in the present tense as a light that is shining in the darkness. Uh, I like how one Lutheran scholar, William Weinrich, uh, brings this out in his translation. Weinrich translates verse 5, Indeed, the light continues to shine in the darkness, and the darkness has not been able to put it out. Uh, light and darkness are such natural metaphors, I, I'm not aware of any culture that doesn't use them. I, I think it's, so, it's a natural thing for everyone to use. 
And in the Bible, and actually in many cultures, uh, it's used to two big ideas. First, light versus darkness can be ignorance versus knowledge. And second, it can be purity, righteousness, and so on versus evil. Right? Nobody thinks of darkness as a metaphor for good. Right? So you want to think light and darkness is knowledge, ignorance, righteousness, evil. And in John we see that they mean both. And that, of course, doesn't surprise us. Verse 5 tells us that the word which is both life and light is bringing that light and life into the world and the darkness has not been able to put it out. The conflict between the world steeped in darkness and the light of Jesus Christ is a constant theme in tonight's gospel. Now tonight we're going to develop this more fully or more accurately John is. But we're going to see it as we look at verses 10 and 11 of this chapter. And there we will be reminded that though the world was made by Jesus, the world as a whole rejects him. That's really an astonishing thing, right? The creator comes into this world and the creatures reject the creator. But that's not the striking thing or the most striking thing. The most striking thing is that when the creator comes to his own people, those to whom he had made a covenant with, he comes to his own, and his own people received him not. And if that's all we had, we would think John has a pretty pessimistic gospel. Right? That, that, that this is going to be really, really ugly, and very few people are ever going to get saved. And we have to remind ourselves, wait a second, who is this word? This word is the creator. All things were made through him. He has power. And when the light comes into conflict with the darkness, it is the light that wins. We need to remember these words from verse 5. Indeed, the light continues to shine in the darkness, and the darkness has not been able to put it out. Beloved, this is not merely an abstract idea. It is a personal commitment that Jesus has towards each of his people. Indeed, he calls you to respond to this self-revelation this morning by saying to us, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Beloved, come to Jesus, entrust yourself to him, and let us remember that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Beloved Jesus wins. Amen.